What was it like the first time you started at a new school? This could be primary, secondary, or even undergrad education. Take your pick. It probably felt pretty vulnerable, right? You know what it's like at your previous school, but here, everything's brand new. It's brand new building, new teachers, and definitely some new friends. It's kind of like starting your life over. This is not unlike what it's like to start out as a B2B SaaS operator. Whether you're starting a new job or starting your own company, it can feel pretty lonely. What really helps in both scenarios is having some sort of a guide to help get you through the tough times. At school, it could be a counselor, and in SaaS, it could be an advisory team, kind of like what we try and do for you on each of these Protect the Hustle episodes. Even if you bootstrap, you're going to need some sort of guidance along the way. What's extremely helpful is if you have an investment team on your side. I'm sure there are horror stories of operators who don't get along with their investment team, which is why folks like today's guest, Jay Levy, are so essential. In today's discussion, we went over the human element of running a SaaS business and how lonely it can be as a founder. Jay stresses, as a founder himself, how crucial it is to form a solid founder-investor relationship. All that and more is coming up next. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Paddle CSO Patrick Campbell interviews Jay Levy about the investor-founder relationship. We talk about what makes a great SaaS community, the three types of investors, focusing on the interpersonal side of the business, building and maintaining the founder-investor relationship, and embracing the silence during investor meetings. Timestamps to each section are listed in the show notes. And after you finish the episode, check out the in-depth field guide that'll help you understand the founder-investor relationship. All right, let's rock, man. So who are you and what do you guys do? Uh, Jay Levy. I'm with Zoho Ventures. We're an early stage fund. We were based out of uh, New York for 14 years. Nice. Uh, we recently actually moved to Miami. So live in the- You uh, and everyone else, huh? Us and everyone else. Now, I'm from Miami. Okay, so you get you got some- So I got there. a little bit like, I feel like I didn't just like rush back there, like, you know, ahead of the curve, per se. But uh, at first I was like, what the heck am I doing back in Miami? And I love it now. I That's really great. do. So they're, they're building a great community down there. So we'll see where that all plays out. From a community aspect- because New York obviously has a deep community, obviously out in San Francisco, Bay Area here where we're at is really good. What what makes a great community? Like what is Miami starting to put in that's going to make it a great ecosystem for investing, founders, et cetera? And, and when we started Zocova 14 years ago, New York didn't have that great of a community for tech. It had a great community for finance and other industries, but it wasn't known for startups by any means. There was a handful of venture funds. And I, I think really what it comes down to is it's a lot of pieces of a puzzle, right, that build a community. So uh, incubators, I think, are incredible for building community, right? Techstars came into New York with Dave Tisch uh, years ago, and that really helped the ecosystem. So I think bringing more incubators down to Florida, um, the educational facilities, getting them involved, getting more founders down there, getting more successes. And it's not going to be one silver bullet. It's going to be a mix of a lot of different things. And over time, you know, hopefully Miami and South Florida will continue to grow the community that's been growing very quickly. I think... There was a step, step function because of COVID um, with the growth of the community and all the press that uh, Mayor Suarez was able to get the city and what he's doing with the, uh, Web3 and Bitcoin. And that was a step function up. And now we got to really get the rest of the pieces together with some real big wins, some great talent, uh, some incubators and education and everything of that nature. And it could be a great place for founders. I'll tell you, the lifestyle is great. I play tennis <laughs> almost every day. Everything's clean. It's beautiful. It's, it's a great place to live coming from New York. That's great. Like, it's kind of funny because it's been fun watching Miami. You know, there's 
there's a lot of fun like Twitter memes and stuff yeah. like that. But it's been kind of fun watching Miami because, you know, it's almost like there was a little bit of a base there. And now it's like growing really quickly. I know Mayor Suarez and even you could argue from the governor's side, like also did a lot of things to kind of set this up. But there's no like one person, you know, who's like, I'm going to set this up, blah, blah, blah. You have a bunch of people. So like, is it just each investor like you or each like founder, like just really talking about it, recruiting talent, trying to invest in the ecosystem? What makes an ecosystem go from maybe a little nascent or maybe incubating to like, okay, we're actually building this thing. Like since no one's in charge, (laughs) I think it's just going to be time continuing what's happening. Right. And the people that, you know, that know Miami, right. And you're like, you're going to Miami, you got to meet with these three or four people. They know everyone there and they've been there for a while and they're really helping and they really care about the ecosystem. And they're kind of the old school people and they're critically important. And Miami's fortunate to have a bunch of those people. um, And they really have, uh, taking a grasp to those of us that are relatively new there to help get our footings uh, down there. And I'm sure it's like the, the actual tactical pieces are like early events, you know, happy hours. It, it's like, weekly happy yeah, hours for startups and founders. And, you know, the other beautiful part about Miami is every, everything's outside. So it's much more communal. Right. So you don't have to worry about going, getting in. It's just come to this event. It's outside. People do things at parks. So it's much more open to everybody in a lot of ways. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think like what's really kind of fascinating too is it's the money and the recruiting I think really helps, right? I was part of the Boston kind of resurgence from like 2012 to like today where Boston's been around for a long time. So there's a lot of different cycles. We've done a lot of deals in Boston. It's been great for us. Yeah. I just remember how having like a little bit of a central like list or a couple people who are always like putting on events or like, you know, paying for the booze, you know, that type of thing just really helped because you kind of... It wasn't like there was all this fragmentation. It was like, you know, and Miami kind of has that vibe because it's, oh yeah, we're going to make, you know, Miami great. Keith Rebois making his comments, going to Barry's, all that kind of stuff. In addition to, you know, Eight Sleep talking about now oh, we're recruiting XYZ people, those types of things. Yeah, you know, Jason cool. Calcanis brought his This Weekend podcast oh, down right. there. Oh, he's there like full time? No, no, but they did their first in-person event oh, with wow. Saks and the whole crew cool. and they had some great events and... Apparently, people were trying to sneak into them. They had to have security all over the place. People were crawling under fences. It's just like, okay, something's happening here and people like to be here. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny. Like you look at some of these ecosystems. I was also in the Utah ecosystem, which is kind of up and coming. But then you look at like Austin, right? Like Austin, it kind of had this like real big resurgence and it just kind of like leveled off. And it's come back, I think, with the COVID stuff. But like, what do you think really will turn? And maybe you haven't thought about this, but like, what turns like, I don't know, like a, like a Miami into a New York or, you know, we can't really compare it to Silicon Valley because, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just too I big. I think some, yeah. some wins, right? Like what made New York? New York was there was capital, not necessarily startup capital, but then there were some wins that came in, right? And, and people saw the, saw the potential, right? And then snowball effect. So you got to gather that snowball. And I think a few successes from Miami companies, because what happens is, the executives then go start other companies, right? It branches off to, to you know, from one company to, to dozens to hundreds. Let's maybe switch topics to like you as an investor, right? Because you've been in the game for a while now. Actually, maybe maybe to back up even like why invest in? Like what's your yeah. journey to here? Like I'm, I'm sure you didn't come out of the womb. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've always had an interest for startups. So about 15 years ago when Larry and I formed Zelkova, we saw a need in the New York market for early stage capital. It wasn't there. There was a handful of funds, most of which writing larger checks, two, three, four million. Some of them had, quote unquote, what we call today seed funds. Term sure. didn't exist back then. But they would apply the same rigor 
uh, and diligence to a $3 million check as they would a $300,000 check. And that, in my mind, didn't work because the companies don't have the same data points. At least back then. I mean, things have changed now with check sizes and things of that nature, right? A $300,000 check 14 years ago is equivalent to a $3 million check today with the same data points you needed for three hundred. You get now with $3 million. The damn inflation, right? right? No. Exactly. But um, <laughs> we saw an opportunity. It was very easy to start a fund back then from an investing standpoint, deal flow standpoint, because all you had to say in New York was, I'm writing checks. Um, we got ourselves involved with some of the incubators really early, Techstars. We got involved with their second class out of uh, Boulder, and that really helped propel us. We had some early wins with some initial companies, and we decided to keep at it. And we're now on our third fund, 95-plus companies, 38 exits I think we're at. We've written checks 300 times. We're pretty much focused on B2B software. We like to do the seed, the seed extension, and the A. Double down, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and we'll do – most of our returns will come from the seed and the seed extension, right? To be candid, we'll do the A when we need to, signaling effects. We'd rather take that money we'd put into the A and put it into another C deal. Sure. Um, but we, we invest. The most we've invested in the company is six times. Okay. So we do follow That's cool. On. Which company was that? Can you share? Uh, yeah. I mean, two of them, actually. Locus Energy, uh, we invested, I believe, six times. And Crimson Hexagon, a Boston company, um, we, we invested. And we did a bunch in Boston. We, we were in Crimson, Help Scout. Uh, we're in Spiro. So Boston's been good yeah, to us. I'm a good friend of Nick's over at Help Scout. So, Nick yeah. was one of the first to really build the distributed model. And wasn't forced to. The number of arguments I've had about remote work with him just over like beers or coffee is just kind of funny. He's so passionate about it. And like he's done it really well. And he's done it incredibly. And he's went to bat for it. That's and that's what I mean. Like he's so passionate about like, no, this is the way this is better for everybody, which is always really, really fun. So that's really cool. Yeah, he was definitely definitely ahead of the curve, uh, to say the least, on, on that stuff. And I know you and your crew have a reputation for being very founder friendly, you know, just usually based on what you there's, say. There's, there's, a, there's a few founders in the portfolio that might not agree with there's that. There's always one review, Glassdoor review here or there, right? The reason I brought that up is not only because the, that's the way you structured things. Like, it sounds like you're like, no one's really like being founder friendly early on. That's our, you know, it's both lucrative for us, but also the right thing to do. I think that there's obviously the cliche of like the investor, you know, not really providing value, not really helping when times are tough, not thinking about the founder. And then there's stories of like just fantastic founders uh, or investors um, who have like been there, you know, tooth and nail for like what separates those two? How do you be a good investor? You know, cause not every founder wants like that much help. Some want way too much help. I'm sure. Like yeah. how do you, how do you square that, square that circle? There's a lot to unpack there. Right. So let, let me start with a few like things that I always say, there's three types of investors, okay. right? There's investors that will write you a check and add a ton of value. Right. There are investors that will write you a check and want quarterly or semi-annual or annual updates. And that's it. Right. And stay out of your way. And then there are investors that will write you a check and drive you nuts. The goal is to get the first two and not the third, right? I always tell that to founders. And and the challenge around picking your investors, especially in what we're going through now with so much remote, so much digital, is you really got to get to know them. And so much of that has to be in person. Seeing the whites of their eyes, seeing how they react, going to dinners with them, seeing if you jot, right? In it's very much like dating, right? And it's it's a long-term engagement that you're going in. I tell founders this all the time. Whether they've got an investor has one share or a million shares in your company, they can make your life miserable, right? Whenever we've seen investor-founder relations go south, there's unfortunately been a persona of 
who it is and why it's happened. And I'll throw it out there. It's a little controversial, but it's usually the middle-aged retired person who doesn't have much to do and is looking for something to do and thinks they can do it better and has an ego and, and needs that ego stroked. And that's when we've seen founder investor issues. So I always tell founders really get to know we're we're looking at a company right now. I've said I will not write a check. I will not commit until we spent hours together in conference rooms and working through plans and making sure we can work together. And listen, I might not be the right investor for you. You might not be the right team for us, but we got to get there. So don't just accept a check because someone says I'm excited to write you a check for 10 grand, 50 grand, 500,000, like really get to know the person. And I think that building that working relationship is is how to start off that relationship right. Do you think that's true for small checks as well? Because I could see someone being like a founder being like, hey, it's a 10K check, 25K check. I think it depends on who it's from. Right. I think if it's a founder, founder, and you see that a lot of the smaller checks we see on cap tables are from other founders. They get it. Right. So they can be more supportive. They understand what it is to be on that side of the table. Uh, I think you got to be careful when it's somebody who's investing who this isn't what they know. And that's where you also run into challenges. It's like, you know, I do one deal a year, one deal every three years. You know, maybe I'm stretching myself a little bit thin. That's when you can run into problems. It's really interesting what you said, and you kind of you you glossed over it because I think it's really obvious to you, and and it, it it's a little enlightening here. It's just expectation setting, right? Like, and and do you think that investors don't they they don't do expectation setting both ways? Meaning, investors won't set the right expectation, founders won't set the right expectation with investors. Do you think that's the crux of it? I mean, I think you've got to have that kind of come to Jesus moment together, right? And, and say, how are we going to work together? How can we be beneficial? And is this right for both of us? Are your expectations for what we're going to do? And our vision, the same as yours. Or are you at least open to allowing us to run with our vision? Um, And that's where where challenges happen. And I think a lot of investors don't appreciate how hard starting a company is. And and being the founder slash CEO or co-founder, co-CEO, CEO, CTO. You know, we've surveyed our founders. And and I'm a big fan of Jerry Colonna and what he's done at Reboot. Um, And I've been out to... Uh, the VC boot camps, and they're a great experience. Um, you know, they're all about being a better board member. You know, that's kind of what the cover is of it. But it's really be a better person, be a better investor, be more supportive. And, you know, founders, we constantly hear this. They're afraid. They're lonely. Depression is incredibly high in founders, right? It's lonely at the top, and that's what they're dealing with, right? And I don't think enough investors focus on the interpersonal side, of the business, right? Because at the end of the day, especially I'm a seed stage investor, right? So I'm betting on the jockey, right? You go C, D, E, Series C, like- Spreadsheets are telling a difference. It's yeah. different. It, yeah. it, it, it's a, the business is already functioning, right? Could it function as well without that CEO? Probably not, but it's not going to go out of business next day. A seed stage company, it's all about the jockey, right? So we take that really seriously. I mean, one of the things that I always do, and I'm a big believer in get a board structure from the get-go. For a company, uh, I think putting that framework in place is great for everyone. But um, after the board meetings, I want to sit down with the founder and really know what's going on in their life. How are they doing? Well, tell me what you didn't want to really say, right? Like in the meeting, what are you afraid of? Where are you be, be vulnerable? And, and founders are afraid to be vulnerable uh, in front of their investors because they sh- fear it's going to be uh, show weakness. And well, what happens when I need another check? Are they going to think I'm not a strong founder or a strong CEO? So we really try to provide a space 
with our founders to, to be vulnerable, to open up and, and, you know, talk about what's going on. And one of the ways I do that is I'm not board, I'm not a board member. I like to be a board observer. So I don't have the same fiduciary duty as a board member does. And as a founder, and this has actually been interesting because we've had board member founder conflict. And me as the observer, I've been the kind of independent, can kind of help jump through things with what's going on for them. So um, that's been a big area of kind of where we've added value. I'm a semi-trained corporate coach. I went through a bunch of the classes. I loved it. I read a lot of the books. And, you know, actually Jerry and Reboot pushed me to do that. Um, so big fan of them and uh, what they've done for me and ultimately for our companies. Yeah. And so something you said there that I thought was really, really valuable is the founder fear element, because I think a lot of people like we all know it, but we don't really talk about it as much is that especially in the seed stage, there's a ton of founder fear of not just like, can I do it? But also if this thing happens, the business will go under whether it actually would or not doesn't matter because they think that, you know, all the things around, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. And that's, that's that vulnerability that's really hard to like show when there's a check or something that is needed for that survival or perceived survival of something. And so I guess, is it is it as simple as you doing some of those tactics you just talked about, which is, hey, what are the things you're not telling me? What are the things you fear that you're not talking about? Like anything like that? It is, but what it takes is really building that relationship over time, right? So getting that, building that trust together, right? And I tell founders, whether it be me or someone else, an observer or a board member, try to have that one board member that you can have those real candid conversations with and that true honesty, who then can be your champion within the board, also and help you walk through things. So who's that board member that you're going to call first when it hits the fan and isn't going to judge you and is going to sit down and say, okay, like, you know, I'll come right over. Let's sit down in a conference room and work through this together. I think that's incredibly important. I I think the board relationship needs to be a collaborative one. uh, And a lot of times it's not, unfortunately. And I think that's on both parties, but the founders can do a lot to help build that collaborative nature. Keep your investors updated, not just monthly or quarterly updates you have a big win let us know immediately text it like i always say that i know i'm in a good place when i'm getting texts at 9 30 at night from a founder that's when you know you got a good relationship and that should be i think the goal of all early stage investors is to get to that type of place with their founders again tactically not to ask you how do you make friends but like kind of like how do you build those relationships because i'm sure you have you know, you have a ton of relationships with people you haven't invested in, right? Then you have a ton of relationships with people you have. Like, is there something that you've done to like speed that up? Do you go and like visit them for like half a day once their check's written? Like that's like, what do you, what are you doing there to kind of like speed that up? But before I mentioned, I like to spend a lot of time with the founders, you know, after it's, I mentioned, I like the, the, the board structure, but it's also delivering on the promises you made, right? So if you say, Hey, I'm going to introduce you to XYZ or I'm going to do XYZ, do it, do it quickly, right? And report back, right? And then also take the time to read the updates, read, read the materials and, you know, check in with them on text. Hey, what's going on? How you doing? Like, I'm at this, I saw this, I saw this company. What do you think about them? That's the other thing is what I don't think investors do enough of is if you see a company tangentially related to a company you're invested in, send it over to the founder for their opinion, right? Flip the tables, let them become the expert, right? I and mean, frankly, they know more about it, right? Like I'm constantly asking founders what marketing stack they're using so I can kind of get an idea of what other companies are doing and take. So I think, I think it really is like show them that you're there to support them and ultimately don't fight for the final point, right? That's a big thing is it's not about the final point, right? So when it comes down to rounds or things of that nature, really make it a, a express to them 
you know, if you're doing a funding round, what your needs are, hear what their needs are and see if there's a middle ground that you can both compromise on. And I think that really helps build a good rapport. Build a relationship, you know, rapport. It's a lot of standard stuff and a lot of like stuff you just mentioned that's like nice in terms of like making sure you flip the table, which I really like. When you're dealing with some of these founders who aren't given some of this back to you? Like, have you had that situation or you've already kind of vetted that beforehand? So what I always say is the relationship's going to change over time, sure. right? We're a seed investor. I don't expect when Sequoia or Andreessen comes into one of our companies with a $50 million check or they're going to have their views, they're going to have their ways and that's totally fine. But what the founders know is, and this typically happens, is when someone from a later stage fund one of the board members is is on their ass and they don't know how to deal with it. They know they can pick up the phone and have that conversation with me. And that happens, right? And that's the rewarding part. I, I Listen, the other thing is I can't be involved in every company throughout the entire journey. That makes this business not, this business is not scalable already. Let's, let's make it less scalable as, you know, trying to be on 60 boards. So, you know, we, we tend to be super involved in the first two, three years. And then again, actually pretty involved in the M&A because we've had so many exits. We can help there. So that tends to be. And then you get to the, the B, C, and D, and these investors are better suited. They're seeing more companies at those levels to be able to provide the advice. I'm seeing more companies at the seed and early stage level to provide advice then. So I think it's also, as an investor, knowing your time and place and getting back to where I said earlier, the, the, where I've typically seen things go wrong with that persona of an investor, that investor also doesn't understand when it's maybe time for them to step back. And I think understanding when it's time to step back as an investor, an early stage investor is critically important also. Yeah. So we, we laid a foundation. We built a relationship. We kind of vetted that before we got into it. We're hopefully like getting a really good communication between the founder founder and you um, or as an investor, being a great board member or being a great investor. Like what else? Like what else is on that list? I know that's, that's a lot. Approach that from being a better board member because investor to me thinks pre-investment, right? How you're a supportive investor and board member once you've invested. I think it's a lot of what we've been talking about is really being there for the founders, being there for the team, helping them out where they need it and what they need at time. And also knowing when to tell them you can't help. It's not your expertise, right? We can't know everything. And that it can be as valuable as helping at times or pointing them in the right directions. And then it's also taking the learnings from other companies. And you know, obviously and honestly, as best we can. But, you know, what have we learned at other places? What have we seen? Right. It's your company. you got to run with this. You're going to make mistakes. If we can help you avoid some of those mistakes, we're doing a great job. Right. And then it's really like being a sounding board. I mean, the one I always get is we always say, any company, SaaS company, you're going to hire and fire your first set of sales. Uh, you're going to hire them probably too quickly. They're not going to have the passion you have as a founder, right? Every founder wants their head of sales to have the same passion and conviction and belief that they do. Okay, give them 80% of the company, right? They're getting a salary commission and a few points. If that, like, they're not going to have the drive that you have. I want to say in every company, that person has been let go. And really what it comes down to is, I get those phone calls and it's usually the phone call is like, are you not approving this from a, you know, check the box standpoint? Like, can I just talk through this? And usually it's too late. They've tried. So I think a lot of it is just being a place to have let founders vent. And, and that's what coaching is really about, right? Is, is let people talk and they know the answers themselves, help them get the answers out of them, right? No investor should know a founder's business better than the founder. And I think that is critical for both founders and investors to realize. 
Well, I think it's really important to like have state that almost plainly within the relationship because I think there's a good number of investors who kind of do the same thing that founders sometimes do and try to like front and like, oh, go. But obviously you have 60 investments, you're not on 60 boards, but there's a lot that you're looking into. And in those coaching sessions, I guess my, my next question is around like, how do you kind of sometimes structure those, right? Like people are coming in, you're letting people vent, that type of thing. When do you kind of know when to kind of like push and push back? And when do you know to kind of just be that sympathetic ear? And it's probably not, there's not a framework for it, but yeah. you embrace silence, right? And people don't like awkward silence. And what do they do? They talk, right? So if you just sit there, you let someone talk, they will tell you everything. So I, I read some stat that apparently like when you're listening, it takes 18 seconds before the average person interrupts. Oh, wow. 18 seconds? Interesting. Like before someone's like... So we're yeah, having a yeah. conversation and I'm telling you something, right? I'm giving you my thoughts or my feedback. It takes 18 seconds before you're interjecting, right? We don't do a good job of listening, right? And because we're constantly thinking about what we want to say next, right? You're saying something. I'm thinking about what I just said. I'm thinking about my next next question. question, How do I guide it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And taking the phones out of the room. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is having laptops in board meetings from an investor standpoint, because what's on my laptop, my email, my text messages, Instagram, Facebook, like distractions. How about like sit back with a notepad and be present? Like, like what can't wait two hours? And if there is something you typically know that's going on and you take a break and you check it. So that's always been one for me. I'm like, the guy in the board meeting with like an old school notepad and, you know, taking notes and sitting back and like listening and everyone's like typing away. And I, you look at their screens, they're, they're, they're not like take, taking notes from the meeting. No, right? I see plenty of emails being Yeah, they're, they're responding to their stuff, emails, yeah. right? Like how can you be present? Uh, so I think being present is critically important also. No, that's smart. No, it's really good advice on a number of levels. I guess interesting enough, like I know you talked about investing and like getting started, but when you were growing up, you know, was this what you wanted to do? Like, why not be a firefighter? Why not be, you know, a chef or whatever else other thing? So growing up, I always wanted to do something with finance. I knew that. Okay. So you were like in it to win it. You know, I always, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. I always, so I grew up in South Florida. I I left, I went to Rutgers because I wanted to be close to New York City, knowing that if I stayed in at, this is, I'm 41. So that was, you know, 20 years ago, if I stayed in South Florida, I'd wind up, the only thing in finance I could be was a stockbroker and that's not what I wanted. And I was fortunate when I was in college, uh, I started a company with two other guys. I was a second employee. We grew to 500 people. Uh, I saw the birth, life and death of a startup in my dorm room. And then I went to work for Morgan Stanley uh, after that. So I got onto Wall Street. So I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial along with something related to finance. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be this side of it, um, but I love what I do. I get to work with great people and I'm spoiled because I get to pick the companies I want to work with. No, that's great. And do you think that that experience of being an operator, like before you're an investor, does that matter? You think like, should I look for that as a founder looking for investing? Absolutely. You know, and and in fact, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, so I'm further away from operating, but I have a partner in a winery that called Uproot Wines that I use as a um, test pool for a lot of the software, a lot of the ideas to stay with it, right? Um, We do, you know, online wine sales and I love it. And, you know, it keeps me kind of a founder also at the same time because it's very easy for an investor to relatively quickly lose those skills. Uh, And I wanted to figure out how to keep them. That's cool. Awesome, man. Where can people find you? Uh, anything you want to plug? Yeah, uh, Zelkova Ventures. So Z-E-L-K-O-V-A-V-C.com or 
at Twitter at, at Zelkova VC, Z-E-L-K-O-V-A-V-C. Very cool, man. Appreciate awesome. it. Thank you. A huge shout out to Jay for doing the podcast. Now you have insight into the founder-investor relationship. Today, we talked about what makes a great SaaS community, the three types of investors, focusing on the interpersonal side of the business, building and maintaining the founder-investor relationship, and embracing the silence during investor meetings. If you want to support Paddle and the show, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle. Paddle.